The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His graces? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white? the blood of the Lamb. Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Some glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore Jesus, we've come to do business with you. We don't come casually. We come earnestly seeking to know 
How do we come into union with you? And how do we remain in union? Lord, I pray that today those who are serious about you will carefully listen and be encouraged in this journey of faith, in this journey that is empowered by your Holy Spirit, that is directed by your Holy Spirit, and that the eyes of each will be uncovered, the veil removed, that we could be serious with you, Jesus, that we could be washed in your blood, and that we could finally fly away. Lord, come and deal with our hearts now. Please send your Holy Spirit to quicken each person Lord, let none escape back into the casualness of the devil's world. I pray in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today's broadcast is for those of you who are serious about wanting to remain in union with Jesus. What I'm going to say to you may be very, very uncomfortable. I'm sharing with you the inner depths of my own walk and what I have discovered and what others have discovered about walking with Jesus. I'm not going to compromise. This is not a broadcast of entertainment. This is a serious broadcast about Jesus Christ and about becoming one with him, coming into union with him. And I suspect that some very painful things will come to your heart. If you're willing and you seriously want to be in union with Jesus, <clears throat> then listen carefully. And I'm going to uncover by the power of the Spirit some truths that may shock you. Let's get started. I want to take you first to the Gospel of John, the 15th chapter. <clears throat> I'll begin with verse 7. If you remain in union with me, and my word may remain in you, you will ask whatever you may desire, and it will happen for you. <clears throat> now, he's saying something that's not understood today. When we pray, we must pray out of a union with Jesus. So, what is that union? How does it happen? If you go with me to Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And I am today speaking to those of you who are serious about joining and becoming one with Jesus and walking out the life of Jesus Christ on this earth to finally enter into your reward on the other side. 
Jesus is speaking to his disciples in Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone wills to come after me, he must deny himself. The word deny in the Greek literally means he must disown himself. In other words, he must give up ownership of his life. He must let go of his life. He must allow Jesus to take over his life. He must take up his cross and he must follow me. When Jesus said this, he was ready to go to his crucifixion, to take up his cross and die. You cannot be in union with Jesus until you have disowned yourself and until you have taken up your cross and been crucified with Christ. Whoever may will to save his life will lose it, but whoever may lose his life for my sake will find it. Let's address this issue. And I want to take you to a story I've shared before, and I only wish to share a small part of it with you today, but it will begin to give you a very clear understanding of what Jesus is speaking about. Reese Howes, in the book, Reese Howes' Intercessor by Norman Grubb, on page 35, begins to give an account of the Holy Spirit coming and dealing with his heart that he might be in union with Jesus. He writes, The meeting with the Holy Spirit was just as real to Reese Howells as his meeting with the Savior those years before. I saw him as a person apart from flesh and blood, and he said to me, As the Savior had a body, so I dwell in the cleansed temple of the believer. I am a person. I am God. And I am come to ask you to give your body to me that I may work through it. I need a body for my temple. Make a note and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He continues, but it must belong to me without reserve. For two persons with different wills can never live in the same body. Will you give me yours? Again, look at Romans, the 12th chapter, and the first verse. But if I come in, I come in as God, and you must go out. Again, look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. The Holy Spirit said to him, I shall not mix myself with yourself. He made it very plain that he would never share my life. I saw the honor he gave me in offering to indwell me. But there were many things very clear to me and very dear and I knew he wouldn't keep one of them. The change he would make 
was that every bit of my fallen nature was to go to the cross, and he would bring in his own life and his own nature. It was unconditional surrender. Now, just a moment. Without that unconditional surrender to Jesus, you cannot be a true follower of Jesus Christ. As long as you claim your own life and then you become religious, you are still driven by that wicked, selfish nature. And the wicked, selfish nature loves to dress up and strut its pace, pretending to be a Christian. Some of you are even unconscious that all of your religion is simply to satisfy your own wicked nature, that that wicked nature has never been sent to the cross. And you serve Jesus out of that wicked nature. Now, all of us have walked in this. I'm not picking on you. I'm simply speaking the truth. That most of today's American Christians are still pagans at heart. But they've been spray painted and dressed up to say, I'm a Christian. And they've done much in self-improvement. But at the very core of their being, they are still pagans, selfish and hard-hearted toward Jesus. Continuing from the meeting, Reese went out into a field where he cried his heart out, because, as he said, I had received a sentence of death as really as a prisoner I had lived in my body for 26 years, and could I give it up easily? Who would give up his life to another in an hour? Why does a man struggle when death comes, if it is easy to die? I knew that the only place fit for the old nature was on the cross. Paul makes that very plain in Romans, the sixth chapter. But once this is done in reality... It is done forever. I could not, I could not run into this. I intended to do it, but oh, the cost. I wept for days. Here's a powerful, strong, 26-year-old miner, coal miner. And he is weeping for days. He lost seven pounds in weight because he saw what was offered to him. The problem is, many of you have never seen what God wants to offer to you. You only see the loss if you totally and completely surrender to Jesus. Now, I don't say this with any judgment or condemnation in my heart. But I talk with Christian people, so-called, all the time, even some that I believe are endeavoring to have union with Jesus. But they will come to an issue, 
and they just say, absolutely no, no, no. I'm not going to do that. And they refuse to surrender to the will of God. They reserve for themselves the right to decide what they will and what they will not do when Jesus speaks to them. Union with Jesus means that we have given up our life, we have disowned our life, and we now have union with Jesus where he is totally in charge. One thing, Reese House continues, the Holy Spirit reminded me of was that he had only come to take what I'd already promised the Savior, not in part, but the whole. Since he died for me, I had died in him, and I knew that the new life was his and not mine. That had been clear to my mind for three years. So he had only come to take what was his own. I saw that only the Holy Spirit in me could live like the Savior. Everything he told me appealed to me. It was only a question of the loss there would be in doing it. I didn't give my answer in a moment. And he didn't want me to. It took five days to make the decision. Days which were spent alone with God. Like Isaiah, I saw the holiness of God. He said, And seeing him, I saw my own corrupt nature. It wasn't sins that I saw, but nature touched by the fall. I was corrupt to the core. I knew I had to be cleansed. I saw there was as much difference between the Holy Spirit and myself as between light and darkness. Nothing is more real to me than the process I went through for that whole week. The Holy Spirit went on dealing with me, exposing the root of my nature, which was self. And you can only get out of a thing what is in its root. Sin was canceled, and it wasn't sin he was dealing with. It was self, that thing which came after the fall. He was not going to take any superficial surrender. He put his finger on each part of my self-life, and I had to decide in cold blood. He could never take a thing away until I gave my consent, and then the moment I gave it, some purging took place. Look at Isaiah, the sixth chapter, verses 5-7. through seven. And he continues, I could never touch that thing again. It was not saying I was purged and the thing still had a hold on me. No, it was a breaking and the Holy Spirit taking control. Day by day, the dealings went on. He was coming in as God and I had lived as a man. And what is permissible to an ordinary man, he told me, will no longer be permissible to you. Now, later in this same book, he comes back and he deals with this issue once more. And I want to read for you page 94 of Reese Howell's The Intercessor by Norman Grubb. The Holy Spirit revealed that 
that the wrong for him, that is for Reese, had not been in paying the club, but in the motive he had in maintaining his payments. He's speaking about his generosity in giving money to the poor. And the Holy Spirit was examining what was motivating him. He said, the Holy Spirit took me through grade after grade. The process of changing one's nature, replacing the self-nature by the divine nature, was very slow and bitter. It was a daily dying and showing forth the life of Christ, but that life was the life of a victim. Christ was the greatest victim on one side of the cross, but the greatest victor on the other. The daily path was the way of the cross. Every selfish motive and every selfish thought was at once dealt with by the Holy Spirit. In my boyhood days, the strictest man I'd known was my schoolmaster. But how often I said that the Holy Spirit was a thousand times more strict. The schoolmaster could only judge by actions, but the Holy Spirit was judging by the motive. Now, I want to share with you also an excerpt from a book by Charles Finney called God's Call because he's going to uncover the very heart of this issue. He uses as his text Ecclesiastes, the 8th chapter, verse 11. It says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of man is fully set in them to do evil. Now, this passage of Scripture shows the moral nature of a sinner's heart fully set to do evil. Now, the term heart in the Scriptures, before I share this message, can mean several different things. It can mean uh, the mind. It can mean the emotions. But in this passage, the heart, the context is the will. But in what direction and to what end are the wills of wicked men fully set. They are set to do evil. In order to explain, Finney says, this verse further, let me say that it does not mean that men do evil for the sake of evil itself. It does not say that sinning, considered as disobedience to God, is their direct objective. Indeed, the drunkard does not drink because it is wicked to drink, but he drinks despite its wickedness. He drinks for the present good it promises, 
not for the sake of sinning. The same is true of the man who tells lies. His goal is not to break God's law, but to get something good for himself by lying. Yet he tells the lie despite God's prohibition. His heart may become fully set upon the practice of lying whenever it is convenient for him, and he thinks it may gain some good for him by doing it. God's efforts to dissuade him from his course are thereby made utterly futile. The same is true of stealing, adultery, and all other sins. We are not to suppose that men set their hearts upon their sins out of love for pure wickedness. Rather, they do so for the sake of the good they hope to gain thereby. The lustful man would perhaps be glad if it were not wicked to gratify his passions, but though it is wicked, he sets his heart to do it. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Why? Because they saw that it was beautiful, and they, and they were told it would make them wise. Hence they took and ate it for the good they hoped to gain, in spite of God's prohibition against it. It is sometimes said that sinners love sin for its own sake. But this is not true. Certainly not in most cases. The simple truth is men do not set their hearts upon sin for its own sake, but upon sinning for the sake of the good they hope to get from it. Now let's take a closer look at the language used in the text that I've read for you. The heart fully set to do evil. One man is greedy. He wants to get money by fair means, if possible. But he will be sure to find a way to get it. Another man is ambitious. The love of fame and reputation fills and fires his soul. He may become very polite and very amiable in his manners. Sometimes he may become even very religious, if religion is popular. But if he is altogether selfish and he is no less selfish for his being so religious. Selfishness takes on a thousand forms, but each form is sinful. For the whole mind should give itself to serve God and to perform every duty as revealed to one's mind. What did Eve do? She gave herself up to gratify her thirst for knowledge and for self-indulgence. She agreed to believe the lying spirit who told her it was a tree desirable to make one wise. She thought this tree must be very important. It was also apparently good for food, and her appetite was whetted. The more she looked, the more interested she became. And now what should she do? God had forbidden her to touch it. Should she obey God or her own excited appetite? Despite God's command, she ate the fruit. Was that a sin? 
Many would think it a very small sin, but it was real rebellion against God, and he could not do anything but avenge it with his terrible displeasure. It is the same everywhere. To yield to the demands of appetite and passion against God's claim is to commit a grave sin. All men are required to fear and obey God, however much self-denial and sacrifice it may cost. Now, I said that selfishness often assumes a religious exterior. At the outset, the mind may be powerfully affected by some of the great and stirring truths of the gospel, but then it takes on an entirely selfish view, caring only to escape punishment and to make religion a matter of gain. In such cases, the mind utterly misunderstands the intentions of the gospel, losing sight of the great fact that it seeks to eradicate man's selfishness and to draw his heart into pure benevolence. Making this radical mistake, the mind sees the whole gospel system as a scheme for indulging in sin. Suppose an individual that that thinks that Christ's righteousness, having been imputed to him, allows him to go on living in sin. That is, he supposes that he is entirely exempt from the penalty of violating the law. He, he even thinks that he has the honors and rewards of full obedience while still living a self-indulgent life of sin, and once saved, always saved. Examine such a case thoroughly, and you will see that selfishness is at the bottom of all of that religion. The man was worldly before and is devout now, but he is devout for the same reason that he was worldly. His selfish heart is the basis for each system, He seeks the same ends in the same spirit. His moral character remains unchanged. So a person will believe that they can be saved and never get kicked out of the family, that they can never stop sinning. They can always live this life of moral decadence at whatever level they live it, But at the very root and heart, their life, their heart is selfish, self-centered. This person may pray, but if he does, he asks God to do some great thing for him to promote his own selfish purposes. He does not have the faintest idea of committing himself to God's interests in such a way that he will be in perfect harmony with God, desiring and seeking only God's interests and having no interest other than God's to serve at all. Remember, we opened this broadcast today with the question, what does it mean to be in union with God? And the passage that I read for you out of the book of Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus said you must deny yourself if you're going to follow me. You must disown yourself. You must disown your interests. 
so that no longer do you live your life for your gain. From that point forward, in union with Christ, you live your life for the gain of the kingdom of heaven, for Jesus, and for others. You no longer take thought of what is best for you. You take thought of what is best for Jesus. You care for his interests. You are crucified with Christ so that you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. Galatians. In other words, well, let me illustrate as as Finney does. He writes, to illustrate this point, let us suppose that a parent should say to his children, I will give you my property if you will work with me and truly identify your interests with mine. If you are not willing to do this, I will disinherit you. Some of the children may take a perfectly selfish view of this offer, and they may say to themselves, I will do just enough for father to get his money. I will make him think that I am very zealous for his interests. I will do just enough to secure the offered rewards. Why should I do any more? Some of you do this. Or, as one man says, I will come to church on Sunday, but I will not come to the Tuesday evening prayer service, and I will not come to the gathering on Friday evening for the young adults. I'm not going to do that because it's too much. But I will come to church. Then God will be pleased with me. He still has his life. And he wants God to bless him. And so now he is going to obey the commands of God. He is not going to go to the club. He's not going to go to the strip club. He's not going to go drink, get drunk. He's going to watch who he keeps company with. Why? Because he wants God to bring him a wife. And he wants God to supply his financial needs and prosper him in his business. Well, you hear, at the very heart, This man has not yet crossed over and been crucified with Christ. Now, he is religious. And he would quickly say, I'm a Christian. And I'm doing everything in my power to follow Jesus. But that's the problem, isn't it? He's still doing everything in his power to follow Jesus. He still owns his life. And now he has directed his life toward a path of religion so that he can have the blessing of God. It's a selfish heart. Suppose, Finney goes on, there is a human government that offers rewards to offenders if they will return to obedience. The real spirit of the offer asks the criminal to sincerely be devoted in their hearts to the best good of the government, the people. But the criminal may take a wholly selfish view of the case, and they may decide to accept the proposal just enough to secure the rewards, and only for the sake of the rewards. 
the ruler of the universe wants and expects the actual devotion of people's hearts, their real good will. If they would give him this much, he would reward them abundantly, but how can he be satisfied with them if they are altogether yet selfish? A man may be as selfish in praying as he is in stealing. He may be even far more wicked for any any man to seriously mock God and impiously attempt to bribe the Almighty to promote his own selfish purpose has utterly insulted the Lord. He has supposed that he could make the searcher of hearts his own instrument. He may insolently try to persuade him to play into his hands. Thus, he may most grievously tempt God to his face. Now, perhaps some of you think that a man is not totally set to do evil. A mother may say, I think my daughter is receptive toward religion. Do you do you think she's converted? Well, no. I do not think she's converted, but I think she is receptive toward religion. Does she satisfy the claims of God by being a friend of his government and his reputation? Well, I cannot give you an answer about that. Ask her to repent, and what does she say? Well, she will tell you she cannot. Well, go to that daughter, thought to be so receptive toward religion. She's amiable and gentle. She cannot bear to see any pain inflicted on any creature of God. But when you present her the claims of God, what does she say? I cannot. I cannot obey God. I cannot repent of my sin, she says. But what does it entail to repent that this pleasant, amiable young woman, so friendly toward religion, should be incapable of repenting? What is the matter? Is God so unreasonable in his demands that he imposes upon you things quite impossible for you to do? Or is it that you have no regard for his feelings and are so reckless of the truth that for the sake of selfish justification you will charge him with the most flagrant injustice, falsely implying that the wrong is all on his side and none of yours? Is this a very amiable character trait in you? Is this one of your proofs that the human heart is not fully set to do evil? You say you cannot repent and love God. You find it quite impossible to make up your mind to serve and please God. Well, what is the matter? Are there no sufficient reasons apparent to your mind why you should give up your heart to God? No reasons? Heaven, earth, hell may all combine to pour upon you their reasons for fearing and loving God, and yet you cannot. Why? Because your heart is fully set within you to do evil rather than good. You are altogether committed to pleasing of self. 
Jesus may plead with you, your friends may plead, heaven and hell may lift up their united voices to plead, and every reason that can press on your heart, whether from your conscience, hope, fear, angels, devils, God, or man may pass before your mind, but alas, your heart is so fully set to do evil that nothing can change you. What is this cannot? And Finney says, nothing less or more than a vehement will not. A good-natured lady will insist that she is not much depraved. Oh, no, not she. She would not steal. True, her selfishness has a more tender and delicate appearance. She cannot bear to see a kitten in distress. But what does she care for God's rights or feelings? What does she care for the rights of Jesus Christ? What does she care for the feelings and sympathies of the sacrificed Son of God, the crucified Son of God? Just nothing at all. What then in all of her tender what then is all of her tender sensitivity worth? Doves and kittens have even more of this than she. She undoubtedly has many tender ties, but they are all under the control of a perfectly selfish heart. Eve too was a amiable woman. Indeed, she was a truly pious woman before she sinned, and Adam had no doubt that she could be trusted in all things. But notice how terribly she fell, and all the sons and daughters of her race have fallen with her, giving up their hearts to a refined selfishness. They reject God's most righteous claims, and they are fallen. Go to the pirate ship, with the captain armed to the teeth and the fire in his eye and ask him to receive an offered Savior and repent of his sins and he will give you the very same answer as that amiable daughter does. He cannot repent. His heart, too, is fully set within him to do evil that he cannot get his own consent to turn from his sins to God. This is a horrible commitment of the heart to do evil. It is the only reason why the Holy Spirit is needed to change the sinner's heart. Except for this, you would no more need the Holy Spirit than an angel of light does. How fearfully strong is the sinner's heart against God. He seems to have almost an omnipotence of strength to oppose and resist the claims of God. The motives of truth may be as high as a mountain, and may beat upon his iron heart, yet he braces up his nerves to withstand God. Is there anything that he will not resist sooner than to submit his will to God? Well, we're coming close to the end of the broadcast today. I want to begin to sum up for you. It is clear from the scriptures. It is clear from the words of Jesus. It's clear from the testimony of Reese Howells and of Charles Finney. And I could give you 
many, many others. And many, many Bible passages. That if you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to have to let the Holy Spirit soften and change your heart as you are willing to do that, he will begin to pull you through into the school of the Holy Spirit. And for some of you, it will be a long, painful, bitter journey. His intention is not to cause you pain or anguish. The pain and anguish come and the suffering comes not because God wishes you to suffer, but because self-denial brings suffering. When we say no to our natural heart, it suffers. It must be put to death. And only Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit and the blood, can put that evil wicked heart to death. Now many of you have accepted a kind of theology that allows you to continue living in your sin so that you never have to face the school of the Holy Spirit where you are dealt with to the very bottom of the heart and every area of your being is searched as God cleanses and purifies and changes you into his likeness and you have believed the lie that when you die you will suddenly be made righteous i'm saying to you plainly out of the word of god that if you wait until that time you will not go to heaven it is not religion that takes us to heaven it is not self-improvement that takes us to heaven. It is not an outwardly pious life that takes us to heaven. It is not accepting Jesus Christ that will take us to heaven. It is Jesus accepting us, and the terms of his acceptance are that you must deny yourself, disown yourself, Take up your cross and follow him. And I review in my own heart and my own life those times when I have risen up in disobedience against the Holy Spirit. I have convinced myself that this is for my good. My heart is lonely and so I need this or I'm depressed, so I need this, or I'm on my way to victory, and I need this victory, I need this money. I need, I need, I need. And so I've reached out my hand at various times and various ways in my life, and I've taken what I needed, even as Eve reached out her hand and took that piece of fruit that she might have wisdom, that she might be able to have in her heart that which she believed was necessary for her to live a happy life. 
and you see the result today. It's very plain. Brokenness, wickedness on every hand, a total denigration of everything holy and good. Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. has just appointed two women, lesbians, who say they're married to each other to be the senior pastors of their congregation. How could they come to that decision? Certainly not from reading the scriptures. No, they reached out and did what they thought in their human heart was good. But it was evil. And they have brought the curse of God upon themselves and upon their church. And we may never see the result of that because the life here on earth is not simply reward and punishment. The wicked are often allowed to go for long periods of time exercising their so-called religion, and yet they have been utterly wicked. So this Baptist church in 2012 severed ties with the Southern Baptist denomination over the issue of homosexuality, and they have become progressive liberals, very concerned about social justice and such things, while living utterly wicked lives. And now the fruit of this Baptist church is being expressed in Washington by having lesbian pastors who have so violated the will of God and have utterly deceived themselves and their congregation that they will take over. When I saw the news, I simply sat and wept. But this is almost universal in the Christian church today. Selfishness driving the body of Christ in the name of religion. And we wonder why then we have no power in our lives and in our churches. I've seen in the lives of men and women over and over the bitter conflict where they say, I will not be crucified with Christ. And yet they call themselves Christians, Christ followers. This issue of selfishness is so so huge. If you want to be in union with Jesus Christ, you're going to have to ask the Holy Spirit to remove the selfishness from your life. There has to be a spark ignited in your soul that says, no matter what the cost, I want to be unified with Jesus. And so I'm going to give up my hard-edged, selfish responses 
to the call of God in my life. And I'm going to place first in my heart Jesus Christ. I'm going to place first the interests of his kingdom. I'm going to place first in my life the good of his people. And I'm going to choose to not save my life, but to let it go and to have only the life that Jesus will give to me. Now I testify in the last minute of this broadcast, I've made that decision and it has brought me incredible pain in the natural, worldly, selfish self, but it has put that to death, transformed me and changed me and made me a man of compassion and love and mercy. He is pulling me through. He will do that for you. Oh, Lord, would you come in power today? Would you expose, would you expose all of the selfishness of the hearts of your people? And would you call us into union with yourself? I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening today to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel. Come and visit the prayer chapel. I think you'll find it an exhilarating experience, one that will call you into Jesus. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.